Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. address a particularly important topic today. And today is not about CBDCs, a topic we have discussed in recent presentations and events. Today it's solely about um, stablecoins. And I think stablecoins really have a potential also to transform the industry, can make actually our life better, of course, has also risks. But I think this is really um, today a really, really good opportunity to talk about stablecoins. And I'm, I'm also th thrilled to have really extinguished speakers with us um, today. But before we go into the, into the details, I would like to um, yeah just briefly introduce myself to you and also the Digital Euro Association I represent. My name is Jonas. I'm currently um, heading the Digital Euro Association, and the Digital Euro Association is mainly a think tank around digital money. So approximately one year ago, we have realized that there is lots of momentum going on when it comes to digital money. And we thought, okay, we really need a think tank, which is in the middle, right? So that brings people together, that fosters collaborations and also contributes to the public and political discourse. Um, yeah, through research, through education, but also for just providing a network. And this is why the Digital Euro Association has been um, set up. We focus on three pillars, which um, are heavily interlinked. So first, education. This is also what we're doing today, right? We have an event where we educate, where we bring um, people together, where we bring different views together. And in the future, we will also have, um, yeah, we have reports. We also had a few blog posts on the ECB's um, recent announcement on the digital euro. Besides that, we also want to build a community and also have a really strong community when it comes to digital money. So we have currently um, approximately yeah, 200 of our so-called experts or fellows. So the DR community is growing um, really remarkably. And as a third pillar, we want to foster collaborations here. So what we want to do is we want to bring the members of our community together and um, yeah, really have the situation that they also collaborate and when it comes to this um, different um, yeah, topics here. Right, so this about the DEA, there are also different um, levels of engagement possible. So if you think uh, this makes a lot of sense, you're of course very, very welcome to join us. We have, for example, um, a newsletter you find on our homepage. We will also share the homepage in the YouTube chat just uh, in a second. And as an individual, you also have two further possibilities, namely to join the DEA as a fellow or as an expert. What is basically the difference? The difference is that as an expert, you're basically a person that has profound knowledge when it comes to digital money. So you um, yeah, basically are classified also as an expert in our, um, in our DEA um, community. And you also have the possibility to join as a DEA fellow. So this is more for the people that um, are currently like um, experimenting in this topic, which are more and more deep diving into the topic, but are maybe not yet experts, but maybe soon will be, right? And this is also, of course, a way where the Digital Euro Association uh, can help. And last but not least, we also have the possibility for companies to, to join. So the, the options I just laid out was for individuals. Now it's about companies. 
And here we have the possibility to um, join as an active member. So basically means really actively working on um, on yeah on some tasks. So for example, um, working in our uh, or, or participating in our working groups, we will soon establish just being part of the DEA network, get full access to the DEA community, right? So really what an active membership is when you really want to also shape and impact the current dialogue and the current um, stance when it comes to digital money. And the second opportunity is the supporting membership, which is basically about being affiliated with the DEA. Um, also, um, yeah, when it comes to, uh, to human resources, uh, benefits, etc. So this is like um, more about um, affiliation and um, using the DEA channels to also, um, yeah, also, of course, promote what, what you are doing and also foster and getting people basically more, um, yeah, um, uh, kind of visibility when it comes to this um, businesses. Right, so this is basically a very, a very short presentation about the Digital Euro Association. As I said, if you're interested about this, you're very, very welcome to join um, to join us, of course, also to um, check out our homepage, also our social um, media presence. And yeah, um, I was really wanted to keep the short today because I know that we have really distinguished um, speakers here um, with us today. So first, um, Dr. Markus Franke from um, Partner SC Labs, also working on the MCELO project, who will basically introduce himself um, later on as well. Then um, John Elge Egelson, um, who is chair and co-founder um, at um, Monarium, and also Julian Legoc, who's currently employed with um, Circle, so also um, a very big um, yeah, US, um, US dollar stablecoin provider. So I think a really good mixture of different expertise in this in this panel. And before we kick off with the um, webinar today, and in particular with the keynote by Markus, we would just take a, a second to make, um, make an announcement, which is for us a really, really big deal. So we are thrilled to announce that um, C-Labs has actually joined the Digital Euro Association, both as an active and a supporting member. So here again, thanks to you, uh, Markus, of course, for supporting this and also to uh, Anka Russo, who was really a, a driving force when it came to, to making this partnership possible. So thanks again. We are really looking forward to work on this, to jointly work on this road to digital money with you. And I'm really, really thrilled to announce this today and also, Markus, to have you today as a keynote speaker and a panelist of of the Digital Euro Association. Right, so that's actually it. So um, without further ado, I would like to hand over to you, Markus. So the agenda is the, the following that we would like to, or that we are having a keynote which introduces stablecoins. So this basically gets us all on the uh, same level of stablecoins. So what are stablecoins, which forms exist, maybe also outlining some benefits, some risks before we will then later on do a deep dive into more yeah, sophisticated and more deeper and yeah, more debatable aspects, I guess, also from stablecoins. Um, and before now really handing over to you, Marcus, uh, one last comment, which is about uh, questions. So, of course, we would like to have this whole sec section and session really interactive. So if you have any questions um, to, to the panelists or to us, whatever, then you are very free to, to ask them. And here we would ask you not to ask them via the YouTube um, chat, but ask them via Slido. So what you can do is you can just scan this QR code here. This is the first alternative. Or the second is you can go to, um, to slido.com. You can insert here the event code, which is uh, 377-368. And then you actually see a screen where you can um, insert your question directly. And this is a quite nice tool 
also in a quite democratic way, um, we in the end will just answer the question with the most likes we can do in our 15 minutes time frame. So we also ask you, if you have questions, of course, to ask them and also upvote other questions that we see which questions are probably um, most, uh, mostly liked and preferred by the whole um, community um, here. And last comment, really last comment. <laughs> if you have a, a question which is um, allocated or should be allocated to a specific person, then please also name, name the name of the person so that we know who to ask in the Q&A. Great, so that was really it. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening to me. And I would now directly hand over to you, uh, Marcus, and to your keynote on um, as an introduction to uh, stablecoins. I'm really looking forward to hearing your, view, your views. And of course, you're also very welcome to first introduce yourself and tell us uh, what you're doing and how this relates to this topic of today. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you, Jonas. Can you see my slides full screen? Yes, perfect. Perfect, great. So thanks for the intro on the topic. Um, we are also very excited about the partnership between C-Labs and the Digital Euro Association um, because we see a lot of potential for stablecoins, especially in the Eurozone um, as well, um, complementing the digital central bank uh, Euro discussion. Um, and uh, actually the second stable coin after the launch of the Cello dollar on Cello was the Cello euro, a stable coin, as the name suggests, that follows the value of the euro. So um, that again shows why uh, we are excited about um, the euro area. Uh, area. Um, to start as an introduction, let me see. Uh, okay. That's the second one. Um, Jonas, you already mentioned it. My name is Markus. I'm working on Cello at C-Labs. Um, Cello uh, is, a, is mobile, open, and real um, with the mission to build a financial system that creates conditions for prosperity for everyone. And mobile means Cello is mobile first. It enables transactions from, for example, low-end mobile phones. It is open source and permissionless. It is proof of stake and it empowers real use cases. Um, I can send today already a um, Cello Euro. Um, this is the stablecoin that follows the value of the Euro with uh, my phone to any phone number around the world. It arrives within five seconds. It costs less than a few basis points in fees. And I just need the phone number of the recipient. recipient. Um, but today I would like to talk uh, a bit more in general about stablecoins and why they exist and if they are actually a game changer or just hype. And um, having access in general to stable currencies can actually make a big difference in many areas of the world. I think this is a, um, a part of the story why cryptocurrencies emerged that many projects in the space talked about. Um, not everyone in the world has um, access to stable currencies, not only because of inflation, um, but also because many people in the world uh, don't have access to a credit card or a bank. Um, so, for example, this gentleman here on the slide is Kaburu. He lives in a refugee camp in um, Tanzania. Um, and the challenges he faces um, are similar challenges many um, people there face as well. 
He is one of 1.7 billion people in the world who are un or underbanked um, and one of 1.1 billion people in the world without a formal government-issued ID. And if he wants to send money across borders, then he needs to pay a fee of $15 for this remittances. If he wants to send a transfer within borders, then he has faces costs of up to 20%. Um, so when we innovate, Uh, on money, um, we at Cello or the fellow projects of this panel later on, or the overall industry itself, what they can do and what we can do is actually build a more inclusive system that changes these fees people have when sending money around the world. Stablecoins can actually do that. They can do so much more. You could imagine, for example, also a universal basic income based on stablecoins when you tie stablecoin usage to an identity protocol. You could also, for example, in times of recessions, think about using this technology to incentivize stablecoin transa transactions and therefore encourage circulations of stablecoins via fees or incentives to support the economy. You could also think about nature-backed currencies, stablecoins that are actually collateralized with things that we would like to see more of, for example, um, stablecoins that are um, collateralized with healthy forests or clean water. Or you could also imagine local stable coins, global stable coins, stable coins for certain use cases, and so much more. Um, but why actually not just use any crypto asset, but like talking specifically about stable coins? And we talk about stable coins because uh, two of the features of money in general are being a medium of exchange and a store of value. And when we look at the Uh, at the money implied volatility of Bitcoin, uh, which ranges sometimes between 50 and 250%, we can see that sometimes using Bitcoin, for example, as a medium of exchange can be hard since it's relatively volatile. And therefore, the industry came up with this concept stablecoin that in, in a very broad definition is just has less volatility than some of these uh, assets. Um, but are stable coins actually always stable? Um, and the answer is it depends. Uh, we can find examples in the industry um, that haven't been stable and for different reasons haven't been stable. So um, the slide here shows a stable coin that follows or should follow the value of the US dollar, the iron stable coin, which is actually a seniorage type stable coin. And I talk in a minute about the different types of, of stable coins. Um, and this iron stable coin can be minted via Titan, which is the seniorage asset. Um, and uh, there was a time where there was less uh, use for iron stable coins. So iron stablecoin minting was incentivized via Titan. But when the price of Titan, the seniorage asset collapsed, also the price of the stablecoin actually collapsed. Um, and when we zoom out a bit and look at other stablecoins, um, we can see some of them have been more stable and some of them ha have been less stable. And it also depends a bit on the, uh, on the period of time we look at. So on this slide, You can see many different familiar names, um, USDT, USDC, Binance Dollar, DAI, UST, FEI, the Iron Stablecoin I just talked about, and also the Cello Dollar. 
And um, looking at this slide, you can see some of the stablecoins um, did pretty like good in, in long periods of times. Some of them saw some DPEGs based on different reasons. And you also can see that all of them on this slide are actually following the value of the US dollar. So not many euro-based alternatives um, we, we see on this slide here, for example. Um, there are different reasons why there are not so many euro-based stablecoins. And I'm sure in the panel later on, we will touch again about uh, topics around innovation uh, in, in Europe. Um, there can also be, especially for fiat-backed stablecoins, um, one of the reasons is a, a very uh, simple reason, uh, looking at uh, the um, interest rates in Europe and the US, you can see over the last years and probably know that interest rates in the US have been uh, positive. Um, what we can see on this slide here is the um, effective federal funds rate um, in the US and also the ECB deposit facility rate for the euro area. And uh, most of you are aware there are different interest rates out there and different um, that are interesting to look at. But looking just at these two rates, it already shows that um, the US rates have been positive on average and the European rates have been negative. And as a issuer of a fiat-backed stablecoin that holds fiat in a bank as collateral for this stablecoin, I actually earn the area below this red line, I earn interest income on the collateral. Um, and this, for example, could cover um, the cost of issuing the stablecoin, distributing it and developing the stablecoin. Um, issuing a fiat-backed stablecoin in the euro area as an issuer is more difficult because I have a neg negative interest rate and it could be that I have to pay this interest rate on the credit that backs the stablecoin. Um, um, and, and therefore, um, this could be one of the reasons why we see more, especially fiat-backed stablecoins that follow the US um, dollar, but there might be more reasons we are happy to go into um, later uh, in, in our panel. So um, differentiating different types of stablecoins is not so easy. Um, this is uh, the differentiation framework of the Bank for International Settlements, um, which um, already shows there are many different categories um, uh, on, on based on which you can differentiate between different stablecoins. You can differentiate um, by user interface, um, what wallets are out there for the stablecoins or what service providers um, allow access to these stablecoins. You can also differentiate by uh, the transfer mechanism that the stablecoin relies on. Is it a stablecoin that is based on DLT? Is, um, if it's um, based on a decentralized ledger, is it a permissionless ledger or is it, uh, is it a permissioned ledger? Is it a fully public or a private stablecoin? Private stablecoin could even be a stablecoin that focuses on certain use cases versus a public one that can be used for anything. Is it a hierarchical or a non-hierarchical? Is it an open-sourced um, protocol versus a closed source? And then there are also differentiation based on the stability mechanism of the stablecoin. So who is the issue of the stablecoin? Is it a central bank? Is it a protocol that is decentralized or is it an entity? 
Um, if it's an entity, is it a regulated bank or is it based on a promise that there might be a bank somewhere holding collateral? And there's also different types of stability mechanisms that underpin um, different types of stable coins. And looking at these different types of stability mechanism to make it very general, you could differentiate stable coins um, by in, in these four broader categories. Um, so there are a lot of fiat slash commodity collateralized stable coins. Fiat collateralized stable coins are actually um, what the name suggests. They are stable coins that have uh, fiat as collateral. Therefore, um, the tech to the currency they are following is um, implemented via the collateral. Um, basically, um, this, these stable coins hold collateral in form of fiat in a bank somewhere, which means there is some centralized um, element to governance um, of these stable coins. Um, there's also some or could be some regulated element to governance of these stable coins because these banks should or could be regulated, which means um, the transparency in these cases is maybe not based on blockchain technology, but could be based on audits um, of the collateral of the bank, which then in the end also means the major risks that are governing these stable coins are in the end counterparty risks or liquidity risks of these stable coins. Um, so the stable coin, a fiat stable coin is collateralized by bank credit and therefore there is a credit risk and this credit risk depends on the bank that holds this collateral. Then there are other um, uh, types of stable coins. There are crypto collateralized stable coins uh, where the collateral is not bank credit but a um, crypto asset. Um, so the examples uh, I have here on this slide for fiat-backed stablecoins are Tether and USDC. For crypto collateralized are DAI. Um, the, the first version of DAI um, is purely collateralized by um, ETH. So here um, the transparency could be higher since the collateral is based on blockchain and therefore also governance can be decentralized. However, the risk now is a different type of risk. It is based on the volatility of the collateral. So you have a higher crypto um, risk in these uh, types of, of stable coins. There are seniorage share stable coins where basically a seniorage asset takes up the volatility of the stable asset. Uh, examples for these are Basecoin, Terra, um, also Fay. And here, uh, the stability depends on this seniorage asset. And then there are these algorithmic stable coins, um, which can be a hybrid between crypto collateralized and seniorage share, like, for example, the Celo Euro and Celo Dollar. Most of these stable coins have one common risk, and this is demand risk. Because if in the end uh, there's a varying demand hitting a, uh, a slowly changing supply, then the stable coin can depack. And this is also what we have seen for many of these assets out there. If there are severe depacks, it could be that there's just no demand for the stable coin and therefore the price drops. Or it could be 
that there is more demand uh, for the stablecoin than supply out there because maybe uh, the, the mechanism that issues the stablecoin uh, called back a lot of stablecoin and there's um, more demand than supply. And then, um, and this is yeah going into economics and we probably don't have a lot of time of going too deep into that. Then it depends on the demand function that is governing the demand of the stablecoin, how severe or how far away from the pack um, then the price moves. So in this case, if you look at the intersection between the green and the blue line, here demand uh, equals supply at the price of $1 um, with a uh, supply of 20 million stablecoin. If the supply would only be 19 million stablecoins, so there would be less supply than demand at the price of $1, then there would be a higher price for the stablecoin and how high the price would be would depend on this demand function. It is very hard to make an assumption on this demand function. Therefore, we have seen many stablecoin protocols that use try to use auctions or other mechanisms to uh, match supply and demand fail because it is just yeah, hard and auctions can be slow. And therefore, we could actually see that market-based mechanisms in the past actually uh, always uh, worked uh, better. I talked a bit about um, the demand for stablecoins and finding real use cases might be very important for the different types of stablecoins. And therefore, I actually want to make a case for mobile-first stablecoins as well. Um, maybe also the reason or one of the reasons why Celo focuses on mobile adoption and is a mobile first protocol. Um, worldwide, we see um, today already 8 billion smartphones uh, circulating. And um, based on this data in the Ericsson mobile, uh, Mobility um, report on worldwide mobile subscribers, we see that not only the number of smartphones in the world is going up, but also good connectivity in many different regions of the world is going up. So you could actually see that enabling, smart, uh, enabling stablecoins um, on, on smartphones actually can be, that, that, um, uh, can be something that brings more users, more adopters to, um, to this technology. And then, one last point, um, which which we can also discuss a bit more in uh, our panel later on, is about trust. Um, so the example I would like to talk about here is actually a universal basic income pilot in a community in Brazil. This project here is run by Impact Market. Um, Impact Market is distributing a universal basic income to this community which means community members get cello dollars on their mobile wallet, in this case, the Valora wallet, um, every day. And this wallet allows them then to send and receive, to do transactions, payments, um, or maybe even saving. What we could see in the beginning was nobody trusted this in the beginning. So what they did, they went to the um, community manager basically every day when they received their universal basic income to cash out immediately. Um, because, yeah, in the beginning, there was no trust in this digital token. But after they experienced over some time that they actually can cash out every day and it actually works over a longer period of time, 
they started to hold on to it. Um, some of um, the community members uh, there started to save. Some of the community members started to do transactions with each other or make purchases at local stores. So over time, you could actually see that this community got used to, in this case, the Valora wallet, and it actually became a, 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 a loft part of the community there. Um, based on this universal basic income part. So we could see that also there, more and more people adopted this technology. Um, so I only had 20 minutes. I hope I stick to it more or less. <laughs> and um, I think now it's time to kick off our panel discussion. Thanks a lot. Perfect. Thank you very much, Markus. Perfect on time and really insightful. And I think it really provides a very, very good and solid basis for uh, for this panel, which will now um, which will now take place. So, as I said in the beginning, um, please, if you have any questions, use the Slido. We also shared the link um, in our in the YouTube chat. So feel free. We also have seen you already. We already have received some first question, which is really good. Um, yeah. So keep uh, keep doing this. Great. So now I'm also very happy to introduce, um, yeah, Julian and also um, John, who also yeah join us to the uh, join us with the panel. And I would actually directly hand over to you, um, John. Maybe you want to introduce yourself really quick, so maybe in a minute, and explain how your work relates to this topic of uh, stablecoins, and then we continue with Julian doing the same. Yeah. Okay. So um, I represent a company called Monerium. And what we do is that we offer regular money, just the fiat money on blockchains as e-money tokens. And this is, and we regulate it uh, and authorize to offer the service uh, within Europe, the European economic area. And um, so we don't like to use the term stable coin. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but uh, we use e-money because e-money is quite different than, than stable coins. But Basically, you have just um, regular money on blockchains as e-money tokens. So that is what we do. And then recently, we um, announced that we have integrated our system with the European uh, payment system, SEPA and SEPA Instant. So basically, you can um, control your uh, e-money tokens through a regular bank account that we provide. So that is because we believe that this token economy is going to go and is going uh, mainstream. Great, thanks, uh, thanks, John. Um, maybe Julian, when I continue. Sure, thank you, Jonas. It's uh, uh, an honor to be here with uh, with such great panel members today. And uh, Marcus, thanks for for the introduction. And I think we could probably coin a smart stablecoin that is a uh, stablecoin that could operate on a smartphone. I think like we should coin it uh, during this. But um, really happy to be here today. Uh, uh, I have Europe at heart. I was born in France, raised in, in Switzerland, and I'm. Uh, participating today from Washington, D.C. Um, and I represent uh, Circle. Uh, you may have heard of uh, Circle, um, but as with uh, uh, Marcus and John, I'm going to follow suit and kind of give uh, the mission of Circle is to raise global economic prosperity uh, through programmable internet commerce. But we are better known uh, for being the uh, principal operator of USD coin. Uh, it has uh, currently about 27 billion. Uh, in circulation. Uh, it's uh, the fastest growing stable coin. I'm sorry, uh, John, I'm using stable coin and not e-money. Um, but uh, we have over 750 billion of transactions uh, on chain uh, this year and uh, very much looking forward to this discuss discussion. Jonas, back to you. 
Perfect. Uh, thank you very much for this introduction. So I think we really have yeah lots of diverse uh, backgrounds here in this in this panel. And, and maybe I would say regarding terminology, I mean we we hope that these uh, stable coins and e-money dimensions might like uh, like uh, be combined or merge in the near future. And um, John, um, I would say like if, if Mika is a place, or maybe assume at least for today um, we, we consider both, right? If if you think this is appropriate, if not, you are uh, you can of course uh, interrupt me here. Um, right. So maybe let's start with a very general aspect. And uh, Marcus already have has touched uh, touched on it. What do you actually think are the main use cases of stablecoins? Because I think this is really essential also for people to understand. We have PayPal. This seems to work, right? We have Apple Pay. Some people use cash. This seems to work. Why do we need stable coins? Um, Marcus also started with this international cross-border dimension, which is really crucial. But maybe um, building on this, what are, from your perspective, further use cases for stable coins? And here, this question is open for for anybody to answer. Yeah, if if I can start, uh, whether it's stablecoin or e-money tokens, then I think um, one of the aspects that is sometimes overlooked is the importance of e-money tokens or, or or the tokenized economy basically to make our financial system safer. And uh, I say this as a as a former central banker and someone that uh, experienced what happened in Iceland in. 2008 where the whole banking system collapsed so one of the things that is happening when you have stable coins or e-money tokens is that you are in a sense uh, unbundling payments uh, money creation uh, and payments and banking and uh, one of the fundamental problems with uh, banking is that you have uh, too big banks Uh, too big to fail banks, and that is because we all depend on keeping our money with the banks. So if you can unbundle that and you can be in self-control of your own funds, I mean, that's a huge benefit. And uh, even if the, the bank will go bankrupt, uh, you are not affected if you are not depending on, on holding your money at the, the bank. So I think This is an uh, this is an aspect. This is this is something that is very often overlooked. But I think it's a it's a tremendous opportunity to make the financial system much safer uh, by using this technology. But in order to do so, then you have to make sure that this kind of money is safe money, and that's uh, you. And there are many aspects that you have to look into there. Of course, uh, it has to be in my mind just has to be regular money. And you have to make sure that the consumer is protected, and that means that you, this has to be regulated uh, and make sure that you know the the one that are providing the service they are following the rules. And we are so fortunate in Europe to have a fantastic framework, uh, the e-money um, directive, to basically guide us in that how this is this is done. This is a this is an old legal framework, 20 year old framework. Uh, where it's supposed to be uh, technologically neutral and the focus there is to make sure that it's safe for the consumer. So I guess I'll add a little bit, uh, completely agree with what John, John has been saying. Um, and Marcus covered kind of the cross-border uh, uh, use case, but I'm going to give you an even more very basic practical uh, uh, 
experience I had just a couple of weeks ago. A friend of mine was married in Mexico. And so I traveled to Mexico and uh, I was paying for dinner. And on the, uh, the, the check, uh, they actually had the cost of transaction of payment. And if I decided to use a visa, I had to pay three more percent on the bill. And if I had to use American Express, I think it was 5% on the bill. And then if I paid in dollars um, and not uh, Mexican pesos, then I actually got a slight discount on the bill. And so what I would have loved, of course, is to pull out my, uh, my phone and just pay with uh, a stable coin uh, where it costs the merchant practically nothing. It costs me practically nothing. And then the transaction is settled in just a couple seconds. What is currently unknown to most consumers is when you go for a particular payment in day-to-day -day consumers uh, purchasing goods, you walk out of the coffee shop, for example, in the morning, very happy with your, your, your caramel macchiato, but that particular merchant only gets that money, whether it's a euro or dollar or another fiat currency, approximately three, four, five business days after you've already left the shop. You as a consumer, this is transparent, but the merchants are paying for that particular fee. So stable coins add one more layer uh, uh, of optionality to the consumer that is more efficient, much less friction uh, at, at lower fees. And so although remittances still cost on average 6.8%, Marcus, you covered the 1.7 billion that are unbanked. There's about that same amount that are underbanked. So you have almost 3 billion individuals that could benefit from using these type of digital rails, digital payments. And at the end of the day, I really think that it is uh, the consumer that should have a choice on what type of payment rails uh, they, they want to leverage and stablecoins offers one more option. Fully agree on, on all of these points. I mean, remittances are costly um, everywhere in the world. Payments are as well, and this can actually change this. And there's even more. Um, Stablecoins can also enable in many different countries lending and borrowing in different types of currencies, what we already see emerging in this whole space that is called DeFi or decentralized finance. You could also imagine um, more and more also micro work applications where people earn small amounts of money in different parts of the world based on different tasks and uh, would need to be paid or could now be paid in small transactions because now transactions are, are much uh, much cheaper um, you could also imagine charity organizations that now much uh, easier and cheaper could uh, send money around the world without having or having the need for an army that protects um, basically uh, the the money they send in, 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 in different regions. And it also enables saving in, in, in areas where people yeah, haven't been able to do that. And then this whole layer that comes on top, this whole smart contracts that making that make conditional payments, for example, possible. That is also super interesting because now you could have uh, a, a payment in a stablecoin conditional on some something on some work being done or some condition in an insurance contract being met and and so much more so yeah uh, a good good future we probably all three see on for stable coins yeah excellent uh, thank you very much so then we have um, to, to kind of quickly summarize we have like cross-border payments so mainly financial inclusion and uh, payment efficiency 
a more a safer kind of a payment system what John raised. So basically unbanked, unbundling payments and banking, also more efficient um, payment system itself, lower transaction fields, so faster settlements, um, also lower costs for merchant, what Julian said. Diversity in payments, I think is important, like enabling driving all these DeFi projects, right? Lendo, lending, borrowing, et cetera. And, and what you said last, um, last Marcus, a pro programmability of payments, how I would call it. So basically having a DLT-based applications that can not just process some kind of like non-financial data, but also uh, can process uh, data, which derives yeah, or promises that lots of automation and efficiency um, gains, right? Great, so I think this is really a good starting point to see why stablecoins um, matter, what they can do. Um, of course, um, there's also um, this, this side, obviously, of, of risks, right? So I think risks are, are um, Marcus started to, to sketch this. So maybe to, to start this, this, uh, this question again, um, what do you think are like major risks of, of stablecoins? Or do you think, well, the, the benefits are way more severe than risks there are from your perspective, not uh, really severe um, risks? Um, yeah, I would re re really be curious in, in your views on, on this one. Of course, stablecoins here again is very broad, right? But you can focus or answer this for, for all kinds of stablecoins. It was on me or? Like everybody, again, you can, you can go yeah. ahead if you want. Yeah, okay. So um, I think the, the greatest risk of... So first of all, I think stable coins are important. Don't misunderstand me. And I think it's really beneficial, you know, the way it's, it's used all around the globe. And, but I think um, um, we, shouldn't, uh, um, uh, we shouldn't neglect the risks uh, regarding uh, to stablecoin, which has to do with governance, uh, transparency and stability. Um, these are all uh, important issues um, which can be solved uh, with a global standard. If, if we would have a global standard where those issues, issues are addressed, we would be able to offer this service uh, around the globe in, in a safer manner. And I think that's uh, the, the, I just think that is that what is needed to be done over the next few uh, years, I guess for global policymakers to, to basically come up with a, a global standard. Um, uh, and, and I happen to believe that um, the best standard, to re-emphasize, re I, I think the, the best standard for um, e-money tokens or stable coins is the e-money uh, framework in Europe. And it is interesting to follow what was going on in the US uh, last week, I believe, uh, in the hearings and the requirements that, and, and the concerns that were raised. Most of those, these issues are addressed in this framework. But as I said, governance, trans, uh, transparency, and stability is, is, of course, a major issue for those services. So I guess I'll, I'll ride on the really good rails of, of John. I think he, he hit on the main points. And if you ask a risk guy, which, which I am, I guess it's a, a nuanced answer with my risk tolerance level and my risk appetite level. But uh, around stable coins, we have to remember that uh, the technology uh, is still a, a, a complex technology. And I equate it to even when the internet came out, uh, I remember my father seeing me install my AOL uh, disks in the computer and telling me that the internet was only for bad actors. And uh, the only benefit I would get from internet is you know, all the, 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 the nasty things like all the gambling and all these type going on. But I think uh, the particular risks uh, around the privacy, I think are, are very real. 
as you know, today, uh, if you walk out and you pay someone with cash, there's absolutely no trace. And some people want a lack of uh, uh, traceability, whether it's, it's, a, it's a personal belief uh, or whether uh, you are actually doing some type of uh, nefarious act. And so with stable coins, you know, I, I think the option of having uh, a, a privacy built into it could pose potential risk to the individuals uh, or the companies that are holding uh, that type of data. Um, and this has been something that I think central bankers around the world have been wrestling with, as well as ensuring that you have proper uh, proper security controls in place. Any type you're dealing with any type of uh, consumer data uh, and consumer money, uh, as some projects are, then you're going to need to ensure you have appropriate controls. So I think the risks really lie with, with companies that are in the particular space, but it's also a consumer choice. Uh, clearly, if you look at my credit card uh, bill the past two years, you know exactly where I've been shopping at. So I guess Visa and MasterCard and Merit Express, they know exactly what I've been doing with my money the past two years. And I allow it because I am allowed to, to uh, I signed a user agreement that was probably too many pages for me to understand and not being a lawyer, it's above my pay grade. Um, but I would see really the privacy uh, and the security as the two largest risks. It's a very good point. But I actually like that the, technology delivers or offers the option to either grant full privacy, CK Snacks, for example, are uh, or is a technology that, that enables uh, private transactions. Um, but on the other hand, as you said, if there are concerns by the regulator or if this should be regulated, uh, if the transactions cross a certain limit or cross a certain size, um, then you could also make it uh, less private. Um, and, and basically, this technology offer, offering both options, therefore, has, has, again, a lot of potential. This goes again back to this diversity argument that I think Julian it was right raised right so that you have like all these these possibilities now with stablecoins and and DLT based means of payment right so some are more private some are less private um, but yeah chances are definitely there but I, I agree and uh, that you you also raise and they raise the risk let's maybe come a little bit more practical and let's come to the adoption question. Um, to prepare for today, I did, did again some research about euro stable coins. And here you basically see that currently, if I wasn't mistaken, I think in top 20, there was one euro stable coin. This was a Stasis euro at like a position 17 or something. And so I think US dollar makes, I don't know, in percentage, but a lot compared to the, to the euro. Let's keep it like that. Um, and here my question to you would be because I'm 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 realizing this and I see that Europe puts up um, a legal framework for for stable coins as well. And but I also see for the last few years the the, the difference between the US and Europe, at least from my perspective, has, has seemed to be uh, become bigger and bigger. And here my question would be to you actually, why is is Europe? I, I mean, first question: Does Europe lag behind? And if you say if you say yes, and why? So what are the reasons why? Um, Euro stablecoins do not have not yet reached um, really substantial uh, market uh, market size. And maybe as an additional question, is this solely due to these uh, negative interest rates also Marcus referred to? Um, or are there other maybe also more severe um, issues that have basically been hurdles for the adoption of uh, Euro stablecoins? And maybe the negative interest rate story was 
just like one of the reasons why it might be harder to issue a fiat-backed stable coins uh, coin uh, on euro because of the negative interest rate. It's just tough to to finance um, basically a operations based on negative interest rates since this is then an interest rate that the issuer uh, in in the in the U.S.-based stable coin actually earns and the issuer would have to pay for the for the uh, euro stable coin. But yeah, uh, I, I'm very sure that my, my fellow panelists have more ideas why Europe is a bit behind. I will, I will gladly tackle it. And Marcus, I think you're right with the negative interest rates, the geoeconomic uh, uh, issue. Um, I'm gonna go uh, another uh, uh, factor that I think is uh, an add-on to this. The largest factor in my mind is around uh, funding and private funding and the lack of private funding that we see an investment uh, in, in the EU. Um, and this has been around for, for many decades. Uh, and on top of the funding, uh, it's transforming that funding into revenue. And so I see in the US, they're very good at transforming private funding uh, into uh, uh, revenue. Um, and let's not forget that Europe actually has the largest public uh, R&D uh, investment in uh, the fortress nations. So I think the investment is there at the public level, but how do you transform it uh, into, uh, into revenue uh, and into uh, businesses? And I guess the last thing uh, that I'll state, uh, when I was working in, in London for about four years, this was really apparent to me with my uh, experience there. But um, the the, the three-legged stool that I also see is in, in Europe, uh, there's like this culture that is fairly risk-averse, um, and then you have policy that is risk-averse, and then you have the regulation that is risk-averse, and then you have this, uh, this uh, perceived lack of cross-border unity uh, between the, the EU 27 that sets in, and you have one country that says, well, what is this other country going to do? And so it's this perceived lack of unity, but I think the lack of interest rates is just one more uh, factor that adds that. Um, and I know, Jonas, you didn't go into percent, but I'll give it to you. It's it's close to 99%, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> US dollar-backed stablecoins against euro stablecoins. But there is some positives. Uh, and we talked about it just as, as we joined in, in uh, uh, kind of the back channel. But you know, like the Euro stablecoin uh, uh, has been growing uh, two times. The EURS, I believe it's called, I think it's close to 100 million. So it's been cro uh, uh, growing and uh, slow and steady could potentially win the race. Um, and let us not forget also that the world reserve currency, um, uh, the US dollar is usually at 70 or 75%, but over the, the past 25 years, the lowest it's ever been is uh, the last quarter with the US dollar World Reserve sitting at around 59%, according to the IMF. So perhaps there's a, a change in sentiment there as well, and uh, that Euro stable coins could potentially start gaining ground. Um, but I'll turn it over. I uh, would love to hear what uh, John has, uh, has uh, to say on this. Well, first of all, then, of course, as we know, then the US dollar is the dominant currency of the world. And so I think it should be, and it's... Um, I think it's natural in a way that it's reflected in the in the issuance of stablecoins, which is now above 100, 100 billion at least. But I also think that uh, the European Central Bank is making, um, shall we say, mistakes uh, in in many ways, because negative interest rates um, they 
I mean, I agree with what Marco said that the negative interest rates, they are not easy to work with for those that are offering the service. I mean, you have to safeguard the underlying funds and if you're losing money by that, then it's not a profitable business. There is a lack of incentive. But we seem to forget that this is, um, this is intentional by the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank wants the people and companies of Europe not to hold the euros. They want them to spend it. They want to support the economy and, and, and increase the velocity of money. So this is a, a monetary policy issue that they don't want people and companies to hold the euro, spend it. And they're succeeding. And that shows also in stable coins. You know, who wants to have hold the stable coin in, Euro, in euros when it's basically diminishing by the day. So, so and then I think it's interesting um, uh, that the European Central Bank at the same time says, well, we have a problem because not enough people are holding the euro, shall we say stable coins or, or whatever, but they are contributing to the problem and then they want to solve it. And that is my second point, which is also important. If you are building a company um, and you want to service Europe and you want to provide the euro to, to Europeans, then if you have a central bank which is saying, uh, you know, and has been saying now for some time that, you know, they think that they are well suited and maybe best suited to offer the service, well, who's going to compete with a central bank if that would be the case? So I think it's, they have to be, uh, first of all, I, I, I don't think it's a role of a central bank to, to issue retail uh, uh, CBTC. Um, I think the private sector is much better suited to lead in technology and business, and, and this central bank has basically no um, role in that. I think the role of a central bank is to support the wholesale CBDC and support stablecoin projects or e-money tokens. I think that is the proper role of a central bank. But the message that has been coming out of the European Central Bank is, you know, yeah, we, we might uh, offer this to the general public, and then you're that's basically saying to investors and companies servicing Europe, are you going to compete with the central bank? Of course not. So I think it's a two, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem of negative interest rates affecting both the service providers and the interest of people of holding euros that are uh, um, losing value by the day. And then the mixed uh, conflicting messages from the ECB, which is not helpful as well. Um, and then I think the, 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 uh, the approach taken by the Bank of England is, is quite interesting. They are, seem to be um, forward-looking in this and they want to support the, the, the private sector. Um, actually, there was a report, I think last year, I think it was in October, where it was clearly stated by uh, several uh, central banks, including the European Central Bank, and one of the design uh, criteria for uh, CBDC would be to basically facilitate the private sector to participate uh, and work with the central bank. I think that is the right approach, but then the message has to be, uh, you know, coherent with that. And the point on on the negative interest rate is a really good one, also for this technology, because in in with a negative interest rate, as you said, the central bank can basically incentivize people in Europe to spend their money, but it's a very non-targeted approach um, because basically there it it doesn't 
it doesn't differentiate. So there's basically a negative interest rate on any cash holding and it would incentivize any spending that could then inflate um, some asset classes and prices in, in, in some areas and in, in, in others it doesn't. There was this interesting approach um, of Demorage by Silvio Xell in Virgil, um, which is a very targeted approach to incentivizing transactions by having a fee on uh, a token or a coin or on money if people don't transact. Um, that that very specifically incentivizes transactions and that could be in, done in, in certain industries, that could be done in certain areas. Um, so that could be more targeted with this technology. This is why um, this, this concept of demerage is, is part also of the initial cello white paper, because it would actually be possible on, um, on a digital currency um, and would therefore also uh, offer a central bank if it if it adopts a digital currency it would offer actually more possibilities to make monetary policy because now they could incentivize um, the um, the turnover of of cash in 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 certain industries or geographies um, and the other point I want to add so it's a good point a good thing that cello euro is now live we really would like to change that there are less um, euro based stable coins so um, yeah. Good mission, I guess. So I'll, <laughs> I'll add one one last thing, Jonas, and I'm sure then we need we need to skip. But I, I completely uh, agree with what Marcus and John was saying. You know, central banks operate with private sector banks, right? And so they're inherently uh, non market based. And I, I also believe that uh, you know when central banks are thinking about uh, digital currencies. They, they really need to, to look at the wholesale type of uh, CBDC because 99.9% .9 of individuals uh, uh, you know, don't have an account with a central bank. And that's where I think Marcus and, and his proposal, what he was talking about, make, makes a lot of sense. Most money in circulation today is private issued money on the two-tier banking system. It is not central bank money. And if you walk into your bank today and you ask him for even 5,000 euros in, in, in cash or 10,000 euros or 20,000 euro in cash, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, oh, I'm sorry, it need, we need two, three days to get that money together for you, correct? Therefore, I, I think what we're looking at with uh, the Advent of Stablecoin is uh, uh, very much private sector leading innovation, much like we've seen private sector leading innovation over the past 50, 60 years with things like uh, plastic and charge cards and credit cards. And you mentioned, uh, Jonas, uh, um, uh, PayPal and Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and what they've managed to do. These were not central bank innovation. Now, they have public-private partnership, which I think is critically important. And I think, Marcus, with your example, that's exactly what you were alluding to. Uh, but again, I, I think this is coopetition. Uh, this is not competition between a central bank and the private sector. Yeah, this is really interesting, interesting aspects you, you just raised. Also, this private-public um, um, partnership and, of course, also ECB's monetary policy. What I would like to discuss next, because if, if I understood you correctly, and Sean and also Julian, is that you would basically say that if, let's assume now, that there will be a digital euro soon, right? So that the ECB decides to issue, I mean, soon is another question, but there will be one I mean, decides to issue such a digital, uh, digital euro. Do you think that this is a threat? To stable coins so do you basically think that this would substitute like the the importance and the adoption of stable coins 
or do you think that both would like coexist um, and would also address um, different use cases again um, to everybody? Not all at once. <laughs> so I guess uh, I'll, I'll take that. Um, I, so uh, when I was talking about cooperation, this is an all ships rising moment. Uh, central banks have a particular role uh, in the economy. Uh, and I don't think the private sector is trying to take over that role, right? Um, as you know, the private sector moves, tends to move uh, quicker than, than central banks. Um, but between us, even uh, with the ECB announcing that they now have a two-year pilot program. When you look at the around the world, we only have five CBDCs. We have about 10 or 12 that are in, in, in pilot stages and, and the rest are, are still trying to research it. Um, it would operate very similar to the way it operates right now. So let's the big money that is transferred around the banking system, uh, the central bank is, is, is part of it, correct? So if you become a bank, you have an account with, with the central bankers, uh, and then you uh, 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 transfer money uh, that particular way. Um, the rest of the economy uh, at the consumer level uh, benefits from this private sector money or from uh, a single currency uh, stablecoin would be my, my choice. And Marcus, you talked about algo-backed stablecoins and commodity-backed stablecoins and fiat-backed stablecoin and multi-currency stablecoins. And I'm sure there are going to be uh, many more that come our way. Um, it's really not competition with, with central banks. Uh, and in fact, in a perfect world, when you take a look at large scale innovation, take a look at the advent of the internet. The internet wasn't just a private sector innovation, correct? It was a public private uh, partnership that, that came out with, with, uh, with uh, the innovation. You look at telecoms, uh, telecom very similar to that. Uh, today there's interoperability be between telecoms, but there are not between payments. So. I really don't think it's competition uh, with central banks. They play in a very different uh, role than the private sector innovators, uh, which we have today here with, uh, with Jean and, and, uh, and Marcus. Fully agree on this point. And exactly the point on interoperability in the end then is key is you can have all these different currencies and types of money and, and other things out there as long as in future the these different systems can talk to each other in a better way than in the past, that there is some interoperability between different blockchains, but also between central bank solutions and uh, private sector solutions, and then maybe decentralized solutions that can enable so much more. Um, and, and, and therefore, I think, yeah, interoperability here is key. So I, I, I agree with um, my panelists. Um, I think there is some um, uh, opportunity for central banks to work with the private sector. And I don't think that's much different from what has happened uh, previously. Uh, we see, uh, I mean, we have some examples from history. For example, Julian mentioned that um, the, the mobile industry, the mobile industry is an interesting example. In 1983, uh, then Motorola had a very successful uh, mobile phone. It was used, but it, it could not be globally used. And that was uh, 1G uh, generation of mobile networks. And it was, in, it was when the, the, uh, the second generation network for mobile phones came out under the 
the, the GSM standard, which is actually something that was, the standard is a European standard. It's not about the technology, it's about the standard. And that came out in 1991. It was about uh, eight, uh, eight years later than, you know, the US Motorola company had this success with their phones, but it wasn't, couldn't operate globally. In, in, in the same way as we are using now uh, mobile phones under the standard. The same thing in my mind is gonna happen with money. I think we, you know, I think there will be money on blockchains, just like we have money on debit cards. Uh, and there, is a, there will be a global standard. Um, and uh, yes, of course, the central banks will have a role there because they are managing the, the money supply indirectly through banks. Uh, even though uh, the private banks are creating the money through through new lending and so on. So I think, obviously, I think this is just a, a story that is evolving. And I think it will go um, through a similar path as the mobile networks. We need the global standard, make it uh, operable uh, all over the globe. But then we need to have the standards. Excellent. So then actually you, you seem to be pretty aligned that there is need for, for both, right? There is a private public partnership to work on it. Interoperability standardization are really severe aspects to consider and which has to be ensured. Also what you just said in the end, Sean, have a global kind of a global standard on this um, on this topic. Um, before we turn to the q and I would ask you two, two last questions. And here again, everybody can ask or just uh, just specific ones of you. It depends on you. And one aspect we have touched a little is the aspect of regulation, right? And, and this is something where like policymakers or regulators in Europe say, well, in just in a few years, we have like a landmark regulation for stablecoin. But I also know that there are skeptics say, well, we, we should have done this differently. So um, this maybe to give you a little bit background, or at least the audience is that the European Commission has proposed the markets in crypto assets um, regulation, which includes a lot of regulation about crypto in general as Bitcoin and Ether, et cetera. But also I want to focus on these uh, stablecoin aspect because here it basically um, it basically says that um, if Mika is adopted later on, it's currently not, but later on, then stablecoin providers have to comply with an e-money um, regime, as John, for example, um, described uh, described it, right? And this would also demand that a stable a euro stablecoin would be indeed fully 100% backed with euros, at least if it's like uh, Marcus, not an algorithmic one, but just like a normal fiat uh, fiat backed one, right? Um, and here my question would be to, to, to you again, maybe John, having you as the first uh, first respondent, what do you think about this regulation? Do you think this is a, a good step that Europe has taken? Also maybe um, increasing adoption of stable coins or do you think, no, it's it's too rough on maybe also not, just not good enough from your perspective? I think the MIGA proposal uh, proposed by the EU, the EU Commission is, um, is um, positive in, in many ways. It basically will um, ban stablecoins in, in, in Europe and you have to uh, be uh, e-money issuer. It, it's, um, I think that's, uh, that's a positive step. I don't like all of the things that are in there. I think we have already a pretty solid framework for this. Um, this was, I believe, I don't know, I'm speculating. I think it was um, in some way um, a response to Libra. <laughs> uh, so, um, and you can see that if you read the text, uh, they're concerned about the one major player dominating the market and, and so on. So I think there may be a little bit 
too skeptical in this proposal. Um, so we'll see what happens. But in general, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a good step to basically, you know, if you have laws saying that it, in order for you to issue money, real money, you have to comply to this legal framework. And then it doesn't make sense if if uh, other uh, solutions are allowed to operate as well because it is constraint. It's it's restricting to to operate under this uh, framework. And it's not only as you you mentioned, Jonas, that this is 100% backed. It's not only 100% backed. You also have to uh, contribute with your own equity. So it's more than 100% backed. But in general, it's positive. So I'll uh, add a little bit to this. Um, clearly, you know, MICA regulations that has to go through the whole uh, legislative process. So it may take another 18 months, another 20 months. Uh, and a lot can happen in this particular space. I think the alignment to e-money is an interesting one because uh, uh, I believe, Marcus, you were alluding to uh, uh, negative interest-bearing account. Uh, in e-money, there is no no interest, correct? Uh, the e-money regime says uh, you, you can't apply interest on on that. So I think the, the MICA regulation has two really, really good things. One, the passporting nature. One, having clarity in the space. As a risk guy, you always want clarity. So I, I applaud uh, uh, the EU for, for at least getting their thoughts down on paper. So uh, clarity is big. Passporting, being able to go across uh, the Euro 27, I think is, is a good thing, as well as making one body, uh, the EBA, although with the uh, refinement of the regulation, they also wanted to make sure that the ECB had a, a seat at the table. But I think having one regulator uh, being able to go to it instead of multiple regulators uh, are also a good one. Now I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that I see. One of them it firmly favors uh, incumbent financial uh, institutions over fintech startups. Uh, and the challenge I see there is that a, such a heavy regulation uh, with uh, a, a lot of uh, investment uh, needed is going to push innovation offshore, which I don't think that was the intent of this particular regulation. I think, in fact, they were welcoming uh, uh, fintech firms. And then the other thing is, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, so uh, please don't take this uh, uh, verbatim, but uh, under the e-money directive, uh, there are these regimes that are called uh, like small regimes or sub-threshold regimes. And because of that, tech entrepreneurs might, might interpret that as too difficult for us to launch uh, a product in Europe, uh, and therefore they might go, go elsewhere. So... I think overall, I, I really applaud and appreciate the transparency and getting down on paper. I completely agree with uh, Jean that I think that regulation was aimed at one particular project with which I was with for almost two years and have a lot of bruises and gray hair, like uh, Jonas knows. Um, but uh, overall, uh, I think having clarity is better than no clarity um, and uh, uh, would commend the ECB for actually putting uh, uh, thought to paper. If I may, I would like to add that uh, we have pretty good clarity for Europe now. Uh, just you know, basing uh, this service on uh, e-money, the e-money framework, we have uh, one regulator. You you apply in, in one country, and then you can passport to 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 the other um, nations. That's exactly what we have done. But I think it's. Uh, I agree with you, Julian. It's. Uh, it's a little bit overboard uh, and too heavy. It's uh, and obviously it was aimed at Libra in my mind. In this Mika, you have 
the e-money regulation for e-money tokens, basically tokens that are referring to the value of a fiat currency that is legal tender and is maybe backed directly by fiat. But in this regulation, there's also utility token and also asset reference token. And this asset reference token could also be stable currencies or stable tokens in some form. And I think especially here, we need a bit more clarity if there's no um, central entity that holds fiat and therefore we have an e-money token, but we have a fully decentralized system, how then it would look like. And, and I fully agree having more clarity here and having a regulation that favors innovation and, and um, yeah, is, is, is always good. Thank you for the, your perspective on this regulatory question. Um, yeah, we are really good in time. So maybe the last five minutes, so the last round before we go into the Q&A. Um, and I would a little bit more talk about like the, the outlook. So I mean, in particular, what do you think, which hurdles have to be overcome that uh, the, the adoption of stable coins, in particular Euro stable coins, uh, will, will increase in the next, uh, yeah, the next few years, I would say. So maybe everybody one minute or something, so quite, quite short, but um, I think this is a really interesting question to see what now, I mean, if politicians uh, listen to this and regulators, like what should we do, right? So I think this is like the question everybody wants uh, to get answered. <laughs> So uh, I think it would be beneficial for European regulators to be clear on the role of central banks. I think that's beneficial for all. Um, and then if you want to facilitate uh, the cooperation between uh, the public and private sector, uh, then I think uh, these negative interest rates is something that you need to address. It's not helpful. And actually, it's not has not been helpful even for the economy. It has not worked very well in Europe. But uh, there are ways around it. And one thing to, to support this industry in Europe would be to do what is uh, possible in the UK now, uh, and has been for some time is for e-money issues basically to deposit or use the, the, the reserve um, or, or the accounts with the central banks to safeguard the underlying funds. I think that would be um, uh, something that they should uh, consider to have that as a, as, a, as a main rule. And that would be, be helpful for our European um, stablecoin, if you will, or European uh, e-money tokens. Thanks, John. Maybe um, Marcus next and then Julian before we go to the Q&A. And your question was basically what would we like to see from the regulator, but also what would, would we like to see in general? Um, in general, what has to change that yes. the situation would differ? Yeah, I think we've seen a very good adoption um, of stable coins, of US dollar-based stable coins. And we've, we've heard, for example, from Julian, the numbers of, of USDC. Um, in different industries. Um, a lot of this is based, for example, on, on trading today, also on crypto trading. Um, what we uh, or what I would also like to see is actually end user adoption of this technology. Um, in the end, uh, in crypto, the overall industry in a way failed to bring the everyday user to crypto and and have real use cases, um, and and I think here 
um, making this technology easier to use, um, make this technology also safer to use and have the legal clarity um, or the regulatory clarity as well. Um, are important steps um, because then uh, we can can actually see a lot of potential use cases, uh, exactly those we've we've already chatted about, and um, therefore it's it's exciting to see that we also now see more traditional companies that are not from that space entering that space. Uh, Deutsche Telekom here in Europe is is one example um, recently, um, and 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 therefore this is for me very exciting that. Um, because it's very important. Many of these algorithmic stablecoins depacked because there was no real use cases for it. Thanks. So, Julian, now you have the last word before we go to the Q&A. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the first word would have been easier because following Marcus and John that have already covered the topic so well is really, really challenging. I guess uh, the only thing I'll add to that is, is uh, just more transparency. Uh, again, the technology is very complex. There's still a lot of education and awareness that needs to occur on what a distributed ledger technology is. Uh, transparency in stable coins, I think, is really, really important, getting down to uh, how do we ensure the trust uh, in the particular stable coin that we're leveraging. And to one of Marcus's point with Deutsche Telekom looking into this, you may have seen that uh, uh, Amazon posted uh, uh, one of their jobs uh, around uh, digital currency analysts. And so when you start thinking about one of the biggest companies in the world that's looking at this, uh, a lot of speculation around, will you be able to pay for something on Amazon? Uh, my belief is yes, and I believe it's coming. Uh, I think digital currencies are here to stay. But out of the six, seven, eight thousand different cryptos, I think little by little, you're going to start cutting down to a handful or maybe a dozen uh, in different type of currency, fiat-backed, that are really going to be the superstars. And I think that's going to be built on trust and transparency, usability, uh, and uh, consuming feeling comfortable using something that is still fairly novel in the industry. And you could Great, see yeah. at the market Sorry. reaction um, that this Amazon job post actually moved prices, um, that this is relevant <laughs> Unbelievable. for this industry. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So thank you very much, Julian. This was really also good uh, closing words before we go to the Q&A. So thank you for sharing your insights on stablecoins. I think this was really interesting for, for my side and also for the audience. Um, yeah. So let, let's now turn to the to the Q&A. And first, uh, I would like to introduce uh, Destan, who's also part of the Digital Euro Association team and will um, jointly with me moderate um, the panel and also really did excellent work with uh, putting up this, this event. Um, so let me again to share my screen so that you can all see the questions and um, again to everybody if you want, have still have questions just use this uh, slido code or scan this qr code and you also are very eager to upvote the, your preferred questions which is really good so please continue to do so and um yeah then we are now continuing we have 15 minutes left so i would i would kindly ask you to be like as precise as possible so that we can actually address as much uh, questions as possible if this is uh, fine Right. So the first one, I think this is uh, this goes to to Marcus, and here's the question about the Celo. So is Celo? So I assume the Celo Euro um, one hundred percent packed to euros, or with some, yeah, some bonds and other uh, securities. Kind of probably referring to this uh, USDC and USDT um, debate we have uh, we have seen. 
Yeah, thanks for this. And and in general, Celo um, is uh, there are multiple currencies living on top of the Celo blockchain. Celo itself, the Celo native asset, is the governance asset of this blockchain of this platform. And there is uh, there are also stablecoins, Celo euros and Celo dollars. And uh, Celo euros are not uh, fiat collateralized. They are a hybrid between an algorithmic and a crypto collateralized um, stablecoin, which means there is a decentralized protocol that is based on smart contracts that adjusts supply of the stablecoin to varying levels of demand and therefore keeps the price um, stable. So there are no, no bonds, no other securities. It's all based on smart contracts so that people can actually verify um, how, how, the, how the mechanism works. Thank you, Marcos. Okay, so the next question is, I guess, coming to John, because uh, it's about e-money tokens, and it says, uh, what is the real difference between stablecoins and e-money tokens uh, from a user perspective? Um, is it the case that they mostly differ in the way they are regulated? Yeah, so both e-money tokens and stablecoins are meant to be money on blockchains. The difference is, yes, they are um, regulated differently. There are multiple regulations and some are not regulated uh, as stable coins. If it's the e-money, uh, the only company that is allowed to call themselves e-money are the ones that have gone through the process and are under the surveillance of a financial supervisory authority in, in Europe. So e-money is just money. It's just like, you know, the money you have on your debit card. A stable coin is, um, is uh, in my mind, uh, a proxy for money. Um, and uh, uh, a part of the law is, for example, that uh, e-money is to be issued and redeemed at par. It's not um, approximately one-to-one, -one, it is just one-to-one. -one. Thank you very much, John. The next question, I think this goes to kind of everybody. Um, and here's the question, isn't there a technological dependence on the underlying tech when it comes to transaction costs? Because on-chain transactions are um, kind of ex uh, expensive. Does anybody have uh, thoughts on this one? I could try to tackle this one, uh, Jonas. Sure. So uh, currently, uh, the uh, so the answer is yes, there's clearly some technological dependence uh, on the tech when it comes to transaction costs, um, which is why with stable coins, there needs to be some type of revenue that is generated uh, from, from stable coins. And so if you take the example I had when I was in Mexico, you know exactly how American Express makes its money on transaction uh, fees because they're running their own infrastructure. Visa runs its own infrastructure, MasterCard runs its own infrastructure and financial uh, services right now, their solutions are very siloed uh, and it's like walled gardens within their particular uh, uh, banks. Therefore, uh, on uh, stable coins, for example, the uh, transaction uh, uh, fees were promising very low or almost nothing. I think Marcus alluded to just a couple basis points at the outset. Um, there has to be some type of revenue to ensure that you are continually uh, uh, investing with capital type of investments in this underlying technology. Therefore, that's why the discussion about uh, reserve assets and the reserves generating, generating a return uh, versus uh, taking, taking payments uh, has been so uh, widely discussed over the past several years. Thanks, Julian. And maybe to add here, it's basically 
the the gas fees or transaction costs on for these on-chain transactions does not only depend in uh, on the underlying technology in terms of size it also depends on in terms of currencies so there are blockchains for example where you have different currencies for the transaction itself and for the transaction costs um, which uh, in in many applications works very well um, and for example on cello you can pay for a cello euro transaction in cello euro which might be a a small technological innovation but in terms of usability it's actually big because you don't need to hold a different currency um, to pay for the transaction fee thank you so much and the next question i'll combine two different questions because they are uh, very connected to each other so will there be any integration of uh, central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, or digital euro and stable coins using an interoperable uh, platforms? And what will be the key consideration for this integration? So the question is open to anyone who would like to step in and answer the question. So one uh, point Julian already covered that is very important and I would like to stress again here is interoperability. So if a central bank would issue a central bank digital currency based on, 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 uh, on blockchain technology, they could um, consider also a decentralized ledger technology based on this interoperability because then uh, you would have many different applications that live on this technology um, talk to each other and make it interoperable. Um, so I think the consideration here is um, if you have a technology that is interoperable with many other systems that makes use cases uh, much easier and, and broader accessible. But sorry, I saw Julian, you also unmuted. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, Marcus. Um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I think uh, if you want to build uh, a, an infrastructure that is for public good, then you need interoperability, which really, really begs the question, uh, would uh, the European Central Bank sit down with the uh, large players in Europe to ensure that what is developed is very similar to an HTTP uh, type of protocol, right? where uh, no matter the, uh, the uh, browser that I'm using, I can access the internet. It should be very similar with any discussions of CBDCs or stable coins that you should ride on open uh, uh, rails in order to have that interoperability, which uh, currently you just do not have. The, the merchants choose who they want to use as their payment uh, service provider. Thanks, Juliet and Marcus. Um, one question, what's the link to join the DEA? <laughs> this is to us, so we, we already posted it on YouTube. You can also join our, our website and Google us, and then you have an application um, tool where you can just uh, yeah, basically apply as an expert um, or a fellow. So this was not the question on top, but now I will come to it. Uh, so here the question I think is really good one uh, when it comes to regulation. So probably to the people that are really, really, really good aware of what Mika, Mika is about. And here the question is given the majority of stable coins are backed by US dollars, and um, would the regulation Mika affect the use of US dollar stable coins in Europe? Good one. Anybody wants to answer that or aware of it? 
Well, my understanding is that it will, um, but as we know, it's not out there yet and it may change. And then maybe also depends on the type of stablecoin. Is it uh, considered to be an asset reference token? Is it considered to be an e-money token? that uh, then probably also determines how it would be regulated uh, or if it's none of these. Thank you very much. Thank you. So the next question is asking the difference between a mutual fund and a stable coin in terms of ensuring the stability or the risk associated with stability. And you can jump I guess in. I, I will take, I, I will take that one. <laughs> Yeah, the risk guy and the guy that has the masters in finance, right? I, I better know the difference between the two. Uh, they're, they're in fact very different. So uh, a mutual fund has diversified holdings uh, into it, and it's really an investment type of vehicle versus uh, a stablecoin is not meant to be uh, an investment. It is purely meant to be a payment type of uh, mechanism. Therefore, you hear a lot about backed one-to-one -one, uh, with very low fluctuation. In fact, you should have no fluctuation in a stable coin versus a mutual fund, of course, that has fluctuation based on market environment and market conditions. Thanks, Julian. So I would say, um, yeah, let's maybe have two more questions. So, um, or maybe one, depending how long the answers are. Um, to Marcus, your presentation was focused on financial inclusion in Africa. Do you want to bring um, the sale of US dollar and euro to Africa? And what are European uh, use cases yeah, despite cross-border payments, I guess? Yeah, I think all these applications um, we mentioned, uh, remittances, saving, lending, borrowing, yeah, remittances in a cross-border way, but also uh, transactions within country, um, payments at merchants, all these are great use cases for um, for Europe and for European uh, or stable coins in Europe. Um, when it comes to the Africa part of the question, um, so that is a nice feature in general of, of uh, the Celo blockchain. There can be different currencies um, sitting on top of the Celo blockchain. So we would like to see after Celo dollar and Celo euro, also a Celo real, a Celo peso, a, 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 um, and, and other currencies. So we would actually like to enable many different countries to be able in uh, to do transactions in a stable coin that is also stable to their currencies but the nice thing is the technology in general could also be stable to a local basket of goods in, in a certain country in africa which might also be interesting um, we have a lot of projects in africa that develop solutions on top of cello um, because there are areas um, where people have less access to the traditional banking system and therefore having technology that is mobile first and enables uh, transactions uh, between mobile phones is uh, perfect especially for for also for africa so um we we actually would like with this technology enable both use cases in in europe across the world and in in, in africa as well thanks marcus and so the last question is coming to John. As you said that stable coins provide a safer money than bank deposits, um, how can actually the stable coins become safer if they are also backed by bank deposits? Well, actually, I didn't say that. Um, I was 
and I don't think I mentioned it here, but I mentioned before that e-money tokens, uh, they can be safer than uh, bank deposits. And the reason I say that is that uh, according to the um, rules, then you're allowed to safeguard the underlying funds in a bank or in high liquid uh, uh, quality assets uh, with a, um, a short duration and in some jurisdiction at the central bank. So it depends on the, the, the rules and the, the, what you outline in your application, how you safeguard the underlying funds, how safe it is. And in our case, we prefer um, um, high-grade uh, liquid uh, bonds, governmental bonds. And obviously, if you have a comfortable risk uh, with, um, uh, with a fund, uh, the same, basically the, the underlying fund was safeguarded in, in let's say, a governmental bonds, and that's safer than any bank. Great. Yeah, so thank you very much all for this really excellent panel and also for these excellent questions, of course, by the audience and also your excellent, excellent answers. So thanks, Markus, John and Julian for being here with us. Um, really also great audience and really lots of people stayed until the end, even if it took 90 minutes, we, we took a deep dive. So thanks for, for taking, uh, taking the time. It was really our pleasure to have you. Um, and maybe one last comment to the, the audience about our upcoming events. We will have like a small kind of a summer break in, in August, um, but afterwards we will continue with um, at least three events in the winter. The first one in autumn, the first one will be about um, privacy and CBDCs because uh, this is a really essential topic currently. So what the implications are, which uh, different concepts exist. Then afterwards we will go back to the to the private sector as we currently do kind of a mixture of both and uh, and discuss how commercial banks can basically participate in this. So addressing yeah kind of tokenized commercial bank money we could end up seeing also in in a very short time time horizon or maybe the medium term would would, would say. And the last event will be about wholesale CBDC. So basically, if you want how central banks kind of leverage a DLT for their respective use cases, something we also tackled very, very briefly today. So this is like the roadmap for the next next few months, starting in September. So yeah, of course, thanks for joining today. You are, of course, all welcome to join our Digital Euro Association. Also um, follow us on social media so that you can see all our activities and also follow our newsletter to be up to date. And yeah, so again, thanks to Marcus, John, Julian for taking the, the 90 minutes to, to be here, to providing your insights and yeah, continue your great work. And I'm really looking forward maybe to have a similar panel uh, next year. Thank you, everybody. Thank, Thank you very you much. Bye-bye. So Cheers.